Hey, thanks to everyone who came out to join us at the Denver Art Museum's Untitled event and Clifford Still Museum for the launch of Denver Talks. We really appreciate your involvement and support as we continue to cook up these special shows. Speaking of special shows, we're also proud to announce that we'll be part of the Denver Film Festival this year, and we're doing a special show at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science as part of Denver Arts Week. We'll have more details on those events soon, so please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and keep an eye on our website and Facebook page for more information. Next storyteller. Our next storyteller. This next storyteller. Our next storyteller. Welcome to the Narrator's Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrator's, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from storyteller Ellen Wright. Ellen told this story about herself, her brother, and the fluctuating space between them at our San Diego show last month. The story was recorded live on the 12th of September, 2017 at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California. The theme of the evening was space. It's 12.04 on Thursday afternoon, and I'm sitting on the couch in my brother's girlfriend's house in San Antonio. I got here Tuesday night. It's an obnoxiously oversized place in a gated community. There's a mass-produced panorama of Paris on the puked salmon beige wall behind me. My brother is passed out in their bedroom, which is upstairs and bigger than my apartment. He's on his back with his mouth agape, and I know this because I went in a little while ago to sneak an Adderall out of his bottle on the dresser to try to take the edge off my hangover. My brother moved to Texas last fall to be with Katie, who had a job and owned a home. My brother was renting a room in a friend's house in PB and working at a new job he hated, his first since being discharged from the Army seven years prior, after seven years in. He and Katie met while she was temporarily working remotely from his office. He passed a note to ask her out, feeling too self-conscious to talk to her in front of an office full of dudes. They did the long-distance thing for about seven months, one or the other flying out every three or four weeks. Last summer, he started talking about moving to Texas to be with her. I'm older, by three years and eight months, and we had a standard sibling dynamic as kids, very love-hate. He masterfully pushed my plentiful buttons, still does. He used to knock on my bedroom door while I was shut inside and run down the hall, which unfailingly had me yelling after him. We would play together for hours, his Ninja Turtles riding in my Barbie Corvette. Over the years, we exchanged countless blows, both physical and verbal, but if any one or thing threatened the other, we were the first line of defense. As I succumbed to adolescence, I really didn't like him. I thought he was annoying and immature, but to be fair, I didn't really like anyone, least of all myself. After 9-11, he decided to join the army to defend his country. He was 18, still gangly and pimply and goofy. I went to his graduation from boot camp in Kentucky. It took me a long minute to pick him out from the group, everyone identically shorn and uniformed, and so, so young. He couldn't turn his head the first day of our visit. He'd not been allowed for weeks and couldn't break the habit. His one request was a box of Trix cereal, which he ate in one sitting. We wrote letters back and forth while he was stationed in the US, and I began to appreciate him in a way I never had. I had taken him for granted, my pesky little brother always underfoot, poking me or teasing me or repeating a joke until someone yelled at him to stop. But now that he wasn't around, I missed him. The morning he was to fly to Iraq on his first deployment, I was working at a cafe and spilled blisteringly hot coffee across the top of my hand. I was so distracted. We continued our correspondence, my letters now addressed to a forward operating base. I eagerly awaited his visits home. His first leave after Iraq was over the 4th of July holiday and we spent it at my dad's house barbecuing. In the midst of the fireworks, I realized he wasn't outside with us, watching. I found him in the living room, staring at the comic section of the paper. 
Whenever we went to Disneyland, we always left before the big finale. He'd say he was okay, that it wasn't a big deal. He just preferred to not be around for the fireworks. But I saw the flinches and the far-off look in his eye. I know he saw terrible things, the kind of things that can't not change a person, the kind of things I'll never understand. I know he saw friends of his killed right beside him in the same vehicle. And the hits keep on coming all these years later. A buddy of his, a father and husband, hung himself a month ago. After we got out, we were closer than ever. He was my best friend. Others marveled at our relationship. Someone once said to me, you know that's not typical, right? And I did, kinda. I was proud of what we had. We didn't have to explain ourselves, and we had so much fun. We drank together, a lot. It's a small miracle I survived those years, regularly driving home double vision drunk from Chula Vista to North Park. We comforted each other through breakups. He tossed my phone aside and took me out when a boyfriend I was leaving texted me some 30 times in two minutes. I listened to his girl troubles when he'd show up at my door with tall cans and chips from the 7-Eleven around the corner. He slept on my floor without me asking the night before I went to file a restraining order against an ex. I picked him up from a trolley station in City Heights, tripping on acid, after his girlfriend left him on the side of the freeway after he grabbed the steering wheel of her car and tried to swerve them into traffic. That girlfriend approached me about trying to convince him to enter an inpatient treatment center to get help, but we didn't get anywhere. That was the girlfriend before Katie, two years ago. They broke up, and knowing firsthand the madness that can come and then go with a toxic relationship, I expected him to bounce back, but he didn't. That holiday season, he flaked on Thanksgiving and Christmas both. I brought his presents to him a few days later. Drunk and strung out on Adderall, he nastily mocked every gift in turn. I took mine back, assuming he'd throw it out. He blasted the superficial consumerism and shrugged off missing the gatherings. I just didn't want to go, he said. One day he told me he sometimes heard voices when he drank that he heard the neighbors talking shit about him, that he couldn't be sure of how much of it was real. He was increasingly distant with my mom. She observed that if she asked too many questions he didn't want to answer, he stopped coming around. He stopped talking to my dad altogether. I got myself into yet another shit show of a relationship right about the time he met Katie. And between that and their frequent visits, we saw less and less of each other. He really pulled away when he announced he was moving. No one in my family has ever handled distance well. My mom recently shared with me the dynamic of my dad's Navy deployments when I was a child. He would get upset at her telling him she missed him, angry at her letters. When he came home to her, he would be distant and cold, and they would inevitably fight until he left again, for months or a year at a stretch. He retired when I was 12 and was around regularly for the first time in our lives. A typical weekend for my dad included a case of beer, along with pictures of margaritas shared with my mom. He was either affectionate and funny when he drank, or an ugly bully. The wrong tone or look sent him into a rage, and he would be inches from my face, his eyes bleary and red and angry. Sometimes, when he really got mad, he hit or grabbed. My brother got it much more than I. He never laid hands on one of us in front of the other or in front of my mom, but I heard his yells and my brother's cries from elsewhere in the house. There's a patched hole in the wall behind the door of my brother's old bedroom where the knob went through as the door was thrown open. My, par my parents finally split up when I was 16. My mom contends she tried for so long for us, my brother and me. My brother, younger and extremely sensitive, took the divorce hard. I was in full teen angst mode, busy sneaking alcohol and cigarettes, unaware and unbothered by what was going on with him. After he moved out, I didn't talk to my dad for almost four years. My dad credits my brother for keeping him from jumping off the Coronado Bridge during this time. He remarried four years later, and shortly after, his new wife gave him an ultimatum, alcohol or our marriage. 
and my dad did for his new family what he couldn't or wouldn't for ours. Recently, while talking about his concern for my brother's drinking, he shook his head sadly and said to me, I can tell you all about living with an alcoholic, referencing his childhood with my grandfather. Stunned, I replied, I know what it's like. He looked at me, truly confused, and said, I wasn't that bad when I lived there. It was my mom who broke the news that my brother had left. I had been texting him earlier that day. I asked if he'd watch my cat while I went camping later in the month, and he said no, he'd be in Texas. Taken aback by the suddenness of it, I snidely asked if he was planning to say goodbye. He said yes. A few hours later, my mom called to tell me he'd come by to pack up a few things he had there before heading to the airport. It was a punch to the gut. I demanded an explanation, expected an apology. I got neither. He didn't seem to see what the problem was. I ping-ponged between hurt and anger. I texted Katie, good luck. I wanted her to know what he'd done, this man she had the poor taste to love and was taking away. I wanted someone else to blame for what he'd done. I apologized for that text this morning. I wrote it sarcastically, out of anger and frustration, but I had no idea how sadly appropriate it would turn out to be. Katie asked me to come out two weeks ago. Things had been really bad since January, she told me, and she didn't know what to do anymore. He needed his big sister. I had such a mixed up mess of emotion hearing that. I felt guilt for com not coming out sooner without being asked, for selfishly spending the better part of a year being hurt and defensive and taking the way he left personally. I felt somehow responsible as his older sister, but completely helpless. I don't know much, but one thing I've learned is I can't change other people. I felt like a hypocrite, potentially coming out to lecture him about coping with depression while by myself battling a particularly nasty bout of it, or giving him shit about his drinking when I couldn't remember my last day entirely sober. I felt resentment at being asked to do the impossible, and at the reminder of how far removed I was, both physically and psychically. But I felt hope, too, that maybe I could do something, and at least I'd be trying, and if nothing else, I'd get to spend some time with my brother. He and I had planned to drive to Austin today. He came downstairs a while ago to get something to eat, mumbled he felt like shit. I asked what time he went to sleep and he wasn't sure. He knows he fought with Katie after we came home from the karaoke bar but can't remember what about. Sometime around three I heard her yell, stop fucking drinking, and a lot of crashing and banging that sounded like things being thrown. He's back to bed now. I fly home to San Diego in just about 24 hours. I don't know if I should have a serious sit down talk with him. We talked a little yesterday. He said he's depressed. He said he's seeing a psychiatrist who he thinks doesn't care, whom he just tells what he thinks he wants to hear. He takes his medication when he remembers. He just needs a job, he said. He just needs to exercise. Things are better than they were. He's careful not to drink so much that he punches holes in the walls. He wants to move to South Dakota with Katie, get away from big cities and all the stupid sheeple. California was worse, he said, everybody in such a goddamn hurry all the time, and he'll never move back. I'm afraid if I tell him what I'm really thinking, that he's in serious, life-threatening peril and needs intensive professional help, he'll shut me out entirely. Katie is scared of the same thing, told me when she's been stern with him he won't talk to her for days after. She's begged him to go to therapy and he refuses. She worries about leaving him at home with alcohol and guns when she goes to work. She doesn't understand what happened and feels like it's her fault. I think part of what scares me is I see so much of myself in him. The generations of mental health problems and substance abuse, the way we grew up, so much of the way we think and see and know the world. 
But there's a space between us that's never been there, and I'm so afraid it's there for good. I fumble for the line between being supportive and being abused, and he's so negative and angry and misanthropic these days, I don't like being around him. I was jealous when he came out here for Katie, but now I don't envy her in the least. I'm looking so hard for the boy who would cry half the car ride home from Chino after a weekend with our cousins, every time. For the man who would shoot the dirtiest look at someone being rude or mean to someone else more vulnerable. He's in there somewhere, under booze and pills and PTSD and depression and fucking life. I just hope he has some kick left in him. Because as much as I want to figure it out and dissect it and make it better, this is another war that's not mine to fight and that I'll never completely understand. Thank you. Thanks, Ellen. The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.